Luke chapter two begins his, uh, Luke chapters one through two, Luke begins his gospel with a collection of Christmas music. Now, he didn't write it all. Of course, he wrote it down, but these are songs that were sung by others, but he copied them and he preserved them for us in the word. It includes three to four different songs dedicated to the coming of Christ. And in the, and last week and today, we are looking at Zechariah's song. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, and he is singing this song. He is prophesying through this song as a means to talk about God's holy visitation to his people. And um, he finally, he, and then his role, John's role in that visitation. You know, I think it's only natural that when a new parent has a child and they're looking at that baby and, and as the baby is growing into a toddler and the toddler into a, an elementary student and inter- elementary student into a teenager, I think it's natural for a, a, a parent to think, what, what is this child going to do with his life? What is he going to be? And I know we all have hopes and dreams for our children. Zechariah didn't have to question that. He knew exactly what this child was gonna do because of the angel that was telling him that he will prepare the way of the Lord. And I think it's funny because uh, just like any doting father, he, his, he turns to his son in this song. And yet, ironically, in all of these verses we've read, this is the first time he does it. And so the song is actually about the coming of Christ And he spends one little line right here talking about his own son and the role that he's gonna play. And so he prophesies that John is going to be God's prophet. In fact, in verse 76, it says, uh, and you, child, speaking of John, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. And especially in these last few verses, we're gonna see that his ministry is very, this, this song is very informative to calling to that calling that Christ has given us to the church. Let me say that again. I kind of tripped over myself. The call that he has given, John has given, is very descriptive and very helpful for us to understand the call that we have as the church, as witnesses. And so we're going to look at that. One thing we do need to understand, though, from the very beginning is that you and I are not prophets. We are not called to prophecy. In fact, I believe, unless you're talking about preaching, uh, the, the Puritans would refer to preaching as prophecy. And so if you're speaking of it that way, that's fine. But as far as revelatory prophecy, prophecy that we had back in the foundation of the church, I I don't believe that that is happening anymore, at least not as an office. And so as an office in the church, we don't have that. And so John, even among the prophets, he has a very unique role in the coming of Christ. Just as Samuel was to David, also John is to Christ. But that doesn't mean that we can't learn from John. In fact, I wanna show you that we can. In verse 77, we'll get there shortly, but let me just point this out. In verse 77, it says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in what? In the forgiveness of sins. And if you look at the end of Luke in chapter 24, verses 25 and through 27, 45 through 47, I'm sorry. 
you see Christ's version of, you see Luke's version of Christ's great commission. And he says in verse 47 that the repentance, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in Christ's name to all nations. So you see that Luke is bookended by that phrase, the forgiveness of sins. John is going to prepare Israel for the forgiveness of sins and salvation. And then we see the gospel. And then Jesus at the very end says, now you are gonna go proclaim the forgiveness of sins and not just to Israel, but to all nations. So there is a connection here. There is a kind of an ongoing ministry. There is an overlap that our ministry is essentially a continuation of the prophet's ministry in the Old Testament. We don't foretell the future, but we foretell the word. And that's a very important, that's a very important uh, distinction. And so as the church, we're gonna see from this last part of the song, the second stanza, that the church is to be witnesses to Christ's coming. We are to be witnesses to Christ's coming. And how do we do that? Quite simply, there's two divisions here that we are to obey his command and we are to trust his plan. We are to trust his plan. And so as witnesses, first and foremost, we are to obey the command of Christ. Obey the command. Looking back in Luke chapter one, verse 76, he says, you're a prophet of the most high, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. In other words, John's proclamation was intended, the defining characteristic of his ministry was to prepare the way of the Lord. This is coming straight from Malachi chapter three, verse two, excuse me, verse one. He says that, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Prepare the way is, is, a, uh, is kind of a reference to a, a really impressive practice back in, the, back in the, uh, the ancient times. You see, when a king or the Roman emperor or when someone was traveling to a distant place, uh, they would send out a contingency of soldiers beforehand and they would clear forest, they would literally level hills or they would build hills they would, there, we have record of some of them. We don't know if this is an exaggeration or not, but we have record of some of them literally digging through tunnels because the way of the king must be made straight. Everything moves out of the way for the king. Make way for the king. That's the idea. And so their whole purpose was to make the path of the king straight. In fact, if you turn the page over to John, when he's addressing his ministry, he says in verse four of Luke three, that he is the one of the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low, crooked, made straight. You see that imagery. And so John's purpose, his proclamation was to prepare the way. And the angel told Zechariah this back in, in verse 17 and one, to make ready a people of the Lord prepared. And so this is his defining characteristic to prepare the way of the Lord. So how does John's crying in the wilderness do this? Because 
his proclamation, it gives knowledge. It gives knowledge. Look back and how this is filled out. How does he prepare his ways in verse 77? To give knowledge of salvation to his people. Knowledge of salvation. We're not just talking about the content of the gospel, even though we're not talking about less than that. But we're actually speaking more. This knowledge of the gospel, it's it's not just understanding the facts, but it's knowing something by experience. It's knowing something because you personally have it. It's the difference between looking at Buckingham Palace on Google Maps and actually living in Buckingham Palace. There's a big difference there, isn't there? It's the difference between knowing about a person versus being married to a person. Which one would you rather do? John's proclamation, the message that he sent to proclaim to Israel is the message that will enable them to know what it truly is to be in the mercies of God, to be saved, to be, to be truly rescued. And what does that mean? In the, in the theology of Luke, for Luke, the primary, one of the primary characteristics that he describes salvation is by the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. And it's very important to notice how that is worded. He doesn't just say forgiveness of sins as this kind of abstract idea. Look what he says. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. You see, Christ forgives their sins. There is a possession here. We're not just talking about this abstract concept that that Christ went to the cross and he paid for sin, just kind of, you know, as an umbrella type term. And now, as a result, we are made able to be saved. No, we are talking about when Christ went to the cross, there was ownership to the sins that he took to the cross, and it was ours. He took the sins that we owned. He took the sins that were ours. Christ takes all the guilt and shame and filth that belongs to us, and he removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. He forgives our sins. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but Jesus forgives me. And that's not all. Christ forgives, it's wiped out completely and freely. But notice also that he forgives their sins, plural. Again, we're not just talking about this umbrella concept that, yeah, I know I'm a sinner. Yeah, I know I'm not perfect. No, 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 no. He forgives every single thought you have that is not according to the glory of God. He forgives every single stray word you say. He forgives every single act you commit. He forgives every single uh, stray thought, stray act, anything you do. When, When you fail to be like Christ in any way, he forgives all of that. We're not just talking about this abstract idea that, yeah, I'm a sinner and I know I'm forgiven. No, he has taken every single sin and he has removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. That is what is available in salvation. 
That is what is available for you. In fact, I love how the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible puts this. Why does he do this? Because of the tender mercy or what the, what the Holman says, because of God's merciful compassion. God's merciful compassion for us. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? That his compassion toward us is also merciful. He doesn't just have, he doesn't just have compassion that doesn't do anything, but his compassion moves him to his mercy for us. He's not just sympathetic to our plight. He actually acts in compassion toward us. The source of all salvation goes back to God's own desire and intention to save us from our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In this, God demonstrates his love for us in that while, while we were yet sinners. Beloved, Christ did not die for you looking for you as if you are saved. While you are sinners, he died for you. There was nothing in us that deserved that. There was nothing in the future that he saw that made him do it. But while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us first and gave his son as the atoning sacrifice. So how can we work toward obeying Christ's command to be witnesses of his coming? How can we ensure that we are preparing people to receive that gospel. There are two general principles I'd commend to you this morning. The first is practical. The first is practical. Colossians chapter four, verses three and four. Paul's praying for this. He says, at the same time, pray for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in, the, I am in, chain, in prison. And notice verse four that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. In other words, make the gospel clear. Don't overly clutter it with human wisdom and, and uh, debates that don't necessarily, yes, they are important, but they don't necessarily promote the gospel. Don't clutter the gospel with, with the wisdom of man whether it be psychological, political, whatever it is, don't clutter the gospel with those things, but make the gospel clear. There's a song that sings about that. It's a make the message plain. And, and that's what we're talking about. Aim for clarity in the gospel. And by that, I mean use clear biblical language in explaining the gospel. And when, when I explain the gospel to someone, whether I have five minutes or whether I have an hour, uh, one of the last person I, I got to lead to Christ, I actually had an hour and a half conversation with them. And one of my goals whenever I am sharing the faith with someone is whether I have five minutes or all day, I want to make the gospel so clear that whether they accept or whether they reject, I want them to understand what they're rejecting. I want them to have a clear idea of what they are rejecting if they choose to reject. I wanna remove all hindrances. I wanna prepare them as best I can. And sometimes that's a microwave and sometimes that's a crock pot. 
but I want to prepare them as best as I can so that there is no hindrance on my part to share the gospel and, and use clear biblical language, but beloved, also use clear biblical language. There was a, a trend back in, the, back in the late 90s to share the gospel with people and try to remove all the church words, you know, the, the, the churchies, if you will, the Christianese. And you know what? If we're talking about cliches and stuff like that that aren't very helpful, that aren't very clear, then I'm all for that. But don't remove biblical language. Don't abandon biblical language. Explain it, define it, but don't remove it. If, if we remove biblical language, we, we lose biblical authority. Don't, don't, don't remove that. Explain it, but aim for clarity. Aim for clarity. But, but also, second, there's, there's the spiritual aspect. What spiritual hindrances can there be? Aim so that there is nothing in our lives that would strain or hinder the spirit in our communication or our fellowship with others. If, if you think about it, think about this for a moment. If you are sharing your faith, there is a built-in motivation to holiness in that, isn't there? You know, I've heard people say this before, and I've even said it myself, that, you know, I don't have my life in order, so who in the world am I to tell someone else that they need to get right with Christ? And, 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 and I get that, but look, I, I feel that. But if you're waiting to get your life in complete order to start sharing your faith, it's never gonna happen. It's never gonna happen. And if you think about this, we've kind of got that backwards, We've kind of got that backwards. Don't wait until your life is in order, whatever that means, but do it now and I promise you, you'll start to get your life in order. There is a built-in motivation that comes with sharing and talking to people about Christ. Think about this for a moment. You walk into a restaurant after church today and you have a track with you and you walk in intending to give the waitress that tract or ask them, can I pray for you or something like that. You know what you're not gonna do? You're not gonna be a jerk to the waitress. In fact, if you walk in intending to share the gospel with them, you are gonna be on your best behavior, aren't you? In fact, you might even tip a little better, right? You're gonna be on your best behavior because there is a built-in motivation that if I'm gonna talk to someone about Christ, then I better represent him well, Right? And by the way, you do that enough, it won't be your best behavior anymore. It'll just be your behavior. And that's what we want, right? And so there's a, there's a built-in motivation to sharing our faith. So don't wait. Start today. Grab a track. I brought some extra gospel tracks here today just for this reason. They're on those back two tables. Grab one on the way out and share it with someone today. You don't have to explain. Just say, hey, you want something good to read? And hand it to them. I promise everybody wants something good to read. They'll take it. You say, well, they might throw it away afterwards. Not my concern. Someone might find it in the trash can later on, and they might read it, and they might get saved. I don't, I don't care. But get it out there. Strike up conversations with people. But all the things we do in the world to remove all the hindrances that we can, to, to make clear the presentation, to remove any sin or, or any hypocrisy in our lives. 
at the end of the day, everything in the world that we do will not change a soul. And so at the end of the day, it is not our fitness for witness, but it is his power. And that leads us to the second part of the song that we're looking at, second part of the second stanza. As witnesses, we not only obey his command, but we must depend on his power. Depend on his power. Look on. In the end of chapter 78, verse 78, I'm sorry. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light and to guide our feet with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. You see, John is merely preparing Israel to receive Christ. The real work is that Christ is coming. Zechariah, after mentioning his son's role, he leaves his focus on his son and he goes right back to Christ and he says, with which the dawning from on high will visit us. And it would be so easy to overlook that phrase, but that phrase is so rich in biblical theology. It's so rich in doctrine. Let me just, it's profound, which is why I translate it the way I did, that by the dawning uh, from on high will visit us. That word, that phrase will visit us, we talked about that last week because if you look back in verse 68, that's, that's actually bookending the song. It starts the song and it ends the song here. That sunrise, that dawning will visit us from on high. The entire prophecy of Zechariah is about Christ's coming visitation. And that, that is a rich theological term that, that goes back to the expectation that God, in his purposes, in his plan, he will interact in human history. He will, he will involve himself in human history and he will visit his people, either for judgment or for rescue. The entire Exodus is referred to as God's visitation, that by he will visit us. But then there's also this other word that is, that is the, the dawning that I've translated. Now, your translations are all over the map. Some of you guys say sunrise. Some of you guys say dead, uh, day spring. Some of you guys say the, the dawn, the morning dawn, or something like that. Translations are all over the map. But what this is referring to, the word literally means rising. And it can actually be used to translate the word east because where does the sun rise? In the east, right? And so, so that's what it's referring to. It is referring to this sunrise that is coming out. But the word itself is literally just rising. And, and why is that so important? I, I wanna show you, either write these down or if you can... Turn to them, please do. But Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah 23. He is calling out the worthless shepherds of Israel. And he's saying, instead of, instead of gathering my people, instead of feeding my people, you are scattering them in order to feed yourself. And so I will visit, I will attend to the false shepherds. But then in verse five, here's what he says. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, that I will raise up for David a righteous branch. 
And that word branch is key because in the Greek Old Testament, it is the same word that Zechariah uses here. It is that rising, it's that righteous branch. In my, in my, uh, in my yard, there is a, we cut down a tree whenever we moved there over on the side yard. And what happened was, is, you know, what happens when you do that is that a little, a little sprig, a little uh, branch, a little, uh, I don't know what you'd call that, but I call it a growth, but I know that's not right. But, but uh, it, it started kind of coming off over to the side. The main tree was cut off, but now there's a new one beginning to grow. By the way, John the Baptist uses that language too. And that's what it's referring to. But again, this word branch, all it is really referring to is rising. It is a new rising that comes out. And he says that David, a righteous branch, he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Look at Zechariah chapter six. Actually, it's referred to in chapter three as well, but chapter six is what I want you to see. He says, thus says Yahweh of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place. He will build the temple of Yahweh. It is he who shall build the temple of Yahweh and shall bear royal honor and shall sit on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. This is, this is significant. There are other references to this branch that the prophets mention. But all together, God speaks of the branch. Look at it here. He says that he shall bear royal honor. What is that referring to? This branch will be king. He goes on and says that a, and there shall be a priest on his throne. Now, in the Old Testament, they naturally think it's separated, but how can a king and how can a priest sit on the throne at the same time by being the same person? And so this branch will be priest. And then, look at this, and the counsel of peace will be between them both. Who gives counsel to Israel? The prophets. And so this branch when he arises, this branch will be prophet, priest, and king. He will be the full mediation between God and man. He will be the, the one who mediates God's rule, his word, and the holiness that is needed on his, people beha on his people's behalf. So much so, he is the perfect mediator between God and man, so much so that we have no need for any others. There is one mediator between man and God, the man, the Christ, Jesus. And Zechariah says, here he is. Yes, you son, you shall go prepare his way, but the day spring from on high, the dawning from on high is here. The righteous branch that we've been waiting for is here. The, the, the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, the perfect king is here. And his name is Jesus Christ. And what has he come to do to give light to those in darkness? God's word is a light 
a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. We have his prophetic role here. He says to give light to those who are sitting in the shadow of death. He brings life to them. He brings them from death to life. Of course, this speaks of his priestly role. And to guide our feet in the way of peace. Who does that? He commands, he rules over us in such a way that we live in peace with God. He's the wonderful counselor, everlasting father, the prince of peace. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. All of this is accomplished by Christ's holy visitation, by God's visiting us from on high. And so we prepare people to receive that one. We prepare his way into their heart. We make it straight by making the message clear and by making sure there's, is, to the extent that we're able, make sure that there are no hindrances. Paul says this in other ways in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as the Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That's our responsibility. That's what we do. What does Christ do? For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he does. We do what we are commanded to do, to share the gospel. We proclaim Christ. It is our responsibility to proclaim Christ to those who need to hear it. And it is our conviction that unless they hear the gospel from us, they will not hear it. You say, Randy, what about, what about God's sovereignty? I thought you believe in God's sovereignty. I believe it with every ounce of my heart. But I also believe that we are responsible both for obedience and for our response. And I believe that with all of our hearts too. See, believing in God's sovereignty doesn't change a thing as far as our responsibility goes. It doesn't change anything. And in our obedience, we must trust the Lord's work in it. Let God be God. Let him work out all the details. I don't know how to work all that out. And quite frankly, other than beyond just wanting to know as much as I can, I'm, when I'm speaking with a lost sinner, I, I really don't care at that moment. I want to do what, I, what God has commanded me to do so that God will do what only God can do. And how that works out in heaven is in the mind of God. Let's just be as excellent as we can in our obedience don't use God's sovereignty as an excuse to disobey him. That's a, that's a weird view of sovereignty. You can't tell him, you can't call him Lord and tell him no in the same sentence. That's an oxymoron. And I won't make any connections with that word, but his sovereignty is no excuse not to be excellent in our obedience, not to do everything we can to take the gospel to the world. Ask God to remove any hindrances to the proclamation of the gospel, whether they be practical or spiritual, and then have those conversations, bring them up, and trust God for the results. That's how we do it. So how can you do this 
Well, I mentioned earlier the newsletter. Don's suggestions for those 10 questions that we can ask over a Christmas get-together, they're so much better to ask. They're so much better to talk about than politics. They're so much better to talk about than your family drama. Family drama starts up, just go to the next question. Hey, you know, yeah, I get that, but what about, you know, and just go to the next question, it works. Sooner or later, that family member will get the hint. (laughs) Actually, they probably won't, but still, you got 10 questions to go from. Surely you can make it last. There are great ways to start holiday conversations with your family. You know, one thing that I do uh, often is that I'll just ask someone, hey, is there any way that I can pray to Christ for you today? Is there any way that I can pray to Christ for you today? I'll just, I'll just ask strangers that. And you would be amazed at how much they open up. Especially around here, but, but even like in Colorado when I used to do this or, or other places where I visited and I would do this, it's amazing how often they open up. Is there any way that I can pray to Christ for you today? Now, one note I wanna say about this. Did you notice how I worded that? Make sure that they know you're praying to Christ. Because prayer today is used as kind of this uh, feel-good kind of thing, kind of like yoga or, or breathing or whatever. Make sure they know that the one you're praying to offer to is to Christ. But even with that, you'll be amazed and how a complete stranger will open up to you and always have a tract with you. Always have a tract with you. In fact, take a few, and this week, take five with you. Every, all, every weekday, my intention, I'm gonna put one in my back pocket, and my intention is to give out five this week. And you don't have to say much. Just walk up to them and say, hey, uh, I know I gotta go. I know you don't have time, but do you mind if I give you something good to read later? And they'll take it. I don't even know what they're taking. That's the beauty of it. They'll just take it. But everybody wants something good to read, right? Everybody wants something good to look at. Everybody wants some good news today. So why not give them some? Why not give them some? Now, if you get the opportunity, sure, tell them about it. But at a very least, just say, hey, I'd love to give you something good to read today. Is there any way I can pray to Christ for you? today. Maybe use some of those questions on that in the newsletter to open up conversations with strangers. You can do that. Or maybe that coworker. Or maybe that friend. Or maybe that loved one. Or whoever it is. The bottom line is, beloved, if you will be intentional, I promise it makes it easier makes it easier. How do I know that? Ever been on a short-term mission trip? You know how easy it is to share your faith on a short-term mission trip? You wanna know why? It has nothing to do with not knowing the people. There are all kinds of people here you don't know. It has nothing to do with that. The reason why it's so much easier on a short-term mission trip is because you wake up every day while you're on that trip intending to do it. That's why. What if we did that every day? What if we did that every day? To share the faith with someone here. Beloved, if you're not here this morning, if you're here this morning, I mean, and you don't know the message we're talking about, it's quite simply this, that 
every time you have told a lie, every time you have had lust, improper desires, every time you have used or taken the Lord's name in such a way that is not about him or to him, you've just used it flippantly or whatever, or even as a curse word, every time you've stolen or by cheating you've stolen a grade you didn't deserve or a promotion you didn't deserve, whatever it is, Anytime you have told a, a lie or a half-truth in order to deceive, or maybe even just innuendo, whatever it is. Every time you've said, I'm gonna do this my way and I don't care what anyone thinks. I am the master of my own fate. I am the king of my own life. Anytime you said any of these things or done any of these things, that is what the Bible calls sin. It is any time you've disobeyed the Lord or you failed to be like the Lord. God is loving. You fail to be loving. God is peaceful. You fail to be peaceful. That is sin. And the truth is, is we deserve to be punished for our sins. Eternal punishment, separation from God, just like all treason. We have, we have committed high treason against our great king. But because he loves us so much, he prepared another way. And that's what we celebrate this time of year, the coming of Christ, who is God's own son. And he did none of those things that we've done. And yet then he went to the cross and he died and accepted the punishment on our behalf. And because it was enough, because it was enough to save us, God raised him from the dead on the third day. And there were witnesses who copied that testimony in the word of God for us and taught us what it means. And now Christ has ascended to heaven he is on the right hand of God the Father himself as the new king of the earth. And he's offering himself to you as a deliverance from God's wrath. He's offering to rescue you, to rescue your soul, to save you from your sins. That's the message we're proclaiming. And we will spend and be spent so that you can hear it. If you're here this morning and you don't know that message, I pray that you will think about it and you will respond. If you're here this morning and you know someone who needs that message, I pray you'll take some of these suggestions and you will use them to try to begin conversations that may ultimately lead to the salvation of your loved one. On that day and the great judgment, when every lost person is telling God, I never heard. Don't let them be looking to you and saying, he or she never told me. Don't be the one that the lost people are looking for on that day. Be the one that gives them a chance. 
Let that be their decision, not yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for these words. And there are lots of needs represented here, but perhaps the biggest need, whether saved or lost, the biggest need is of your grace to change us, to sanctify us. Perhaps someone here today needs to be redeemed by it. Whatever the case may be, Lord, I pray that this time will be used to your glory and that you are doing the work that you intend to do in all of our hearts. Let's sing together. Let's stand.